Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Mikhail asked me right before worship started, Mom, are you nervous? Yeah, a little bit. He goes, well, I'll come up and do an interpretive dance with you. (laughs) No, that's all right. We got it. (laughs) Thank you, Mikhail. Oh, I was thinking about how um, Palm Sunday, if you, if you didn't grow up in a liturgical-type church, um, you may not have celebrated Palm Sunday very often. We, you know, we focus on the resurrection, we focus on Christmas, but Palm Sunday and Good Friday get kind of looked over sometimes, and so Pastor Mitch asked me if I would share about Palm Sunday and about the triumphal entry, and I said, oh, absolutely. Um, and so I want to stop, and I want us to stop and think about what today means. Because all of history led to that moment. From, from Genesis, I think it's chapter 3, when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. From that moment in Genesis until this moment when Jesus starts his journey to the cross, it's, it's come to this. So today is the day we remember Jesus entering Jerusalem to begin his final journey. And it marks the beginning of a week where Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what was waiting for him. He resolutely set his face towards the cross for the joy set before him. And what was the joy set before him? It was us. It was our redemption, our freedom, our deliverance, our healing. I was thinking about how the, the days leading up to the cross, what he did and what he said, were, we want to really look at that because these are the actions and the words of a man who knows he's about to die. And it's not that what happened is more important than the previous three years of his ministry, but there's something about the words and the actions of a dying man that we take notice of. Back in September... A good friend, actually my mom and dad's best friend, Terry Rose, he passed away. And Betty and Terry had known, um, my parents had known them since high school. So we're talking um, almost 70 years of friendship. And Terry was blinded in the Korean War. Um, He and Betty had dated in high school, and then he went off to the Korean War, was injured by a grenade blast and blinded. He came home, went through rehab and therapy and blind, the school for the blind and married Betty and went on to have a family, never saw his own children with his own eyes. His last memory of Betty was before he went to war. So he died with his, you know, he, went, he died with that picture of his wife from being 20 years old and here she was 80 <laughs> or 80 something. Anyway. So my dad, or my sister and I accompanied my dad down to Terry's funeral in California in September. And I don't remember much about the memorial service, but what stood out to me more than anything was this recording that Terry's son had made. About, it was about five days before Terry died. Now, Terry had been in incredible pain, but his mind was clear all the way to the end. 
And so his son, Stephen, wanted to capture Terry's heart. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts? What are you, you know, what's on your mind as you're preparing to meet Jesus? Because Terry knew that the, the end was coming. And so Terry shared about uh, the joy of walking with Jesus all these years and how he wouldn't trade anything that had happened to him for the joy of knowing Christ like he did. And that if that injury in the Korean War and being left blind is what led him to know the Lord the way he did, he wouldn't have traded it for anything. And he was exhorting his family to live a life worthy of the gospel. And he just went on and on and on. And it was, it was stunning. These were the words of a dying man. And that's what stayed with me. And so that's what I want to do this morning. What, what are the words and what is Jesus saying and doing as he moves towards the cross, knowing that he's getting ready to lay his life down? But first, uh, I want to look at Luke 9.51, chapter 9, verse 51. And I'm sorry, I don't have the scriptures up on the screen. So if you have your phone or your Bible, you can use that. So Luke 9, 51, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Out of complete surrender and obedience to the Father and out of fierce love for us, he set his face towards Jerusalem and he said, I will do this. And that word resolute, we, I think we, we think of it in terms of resolution, right? New Year's resolution. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to join the gym. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to wake up earlier. And how well does that work out for us? If you're like me, not very well. But that word resolute means to plant down a support that fixes. It's immovable. Jesus was immovable in his determination and his course to go to the cross. Isaiah 57, speaking of the Messiah coming, speaking of Jesus, it says, I've set my face like a flint or like a stone, and I know I will not be put to shame. He was firmly set on enduring the shame Enduring the suffering and the pain, the separation from the Father, which he had never known before. In all of eternity up to this moment, he'd never known what it was to be separated from the Father, and he was going to be experiencing that for the first time. But he was willing to do it so that you and I could be brought back and redeemed to be set free to be restored to our place as sons and daughters of God and to be seated in heavenly places. So all four Gospels have the account of Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem, and it's often called the triumphal entry. And when you think about it, it's, it's, it seems like it's anything but triumphant, actually. Because Jesus comes riding into into town, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah, where it was prophesied that he'd come riding on a colt. But as the story unfolds, things don't go the way the Jews think it's going to go. It doesn't look very triumphant when the king ends up nailed to the cross. 
we have the advantage of knowing how the story ends. That when all seemed lost, that Jesus was actually conquering death and hell. But they didn't know that. Okay, so let's, if you've got your Bibles, you turn to Luke 18, 31. I'm actually going to start a little bit before Jesus heads into Jerusalem. And it's a long passage, but I'm going to go ahead and we'll read it together. So Luke 18, 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus is coming through Jericho, which he has to go through to get to Jerusalem. And he stops for a blind man. Actually, there were two. This gospel, in Luke, in Luke it says there was one, but the, um, in Mark, I believe, it says there were two. And so the first thing I want to point out that he's doing here, that Jesus is doing, is that the most seemingly inconvenient time, Jesus stops for broken people. And he asks us to do the same. He's on his way to the cross. And if ever there is a time for self-preservation, that would be it. Hey, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting ready to die here. You know, I, I know you've got your problems, but I've got bigger things to do. No. In that moment, that blind man, or those two blind men, became his priority. 
And Jesus was fully surrendered to do the will of the Father. He only did what he saw his Father doing. So laying aside any anguish that he might be beginning to feel, because remember, he's fully human, right? If I were on my way to the cross, I would be in complete anguish. He's fully human. We can't forget that. It's, you know, it's easy to think, well, Jesus is God in the flesh, so, you know, he's God. Well, yeah, he's God, but he's also man. And he has experienced every temptation, every emotion. We, he's, he's felt it. So he knows what he's headed towards. I can't imagine what's going on in his heart and in his mind, but he takes time to stop. He stops for two blind, broken, destitute beggars who were outcasts. And in Matthew 20, 34, it says Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes. And then shortly after this, as he's getting ready to leave Jericho, he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Um, Tax collectors were hated. They were hated by the Jewish people. The tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman government. They cheated their own people. When they would go to collect the, the money for the Romans, they would take a little more, or they would, they would charge a little more than what was owed by the person, and they would keep the extra for themselves. And everybody knew that they were doing this, but they couldn't stop it. There was nothing they could do about it. So tax collectors were not popular people by any means. They were seen as traitors. Rather than fighting the Romans, they were helping the Romans and skimming off the top for themselves. And what does Jesus do? He stops for this man who's totally hated by society. He's a social pariah. And again, he's moving towards his death, but he stops and he takes time. And his attention, rather than being divided, is solely set on this one man. And when I sat on this and I thought about it, boy, it really wrecked me. Because I know how agitated and how irritated I can personally get when I've got my own agenda and I've got my list of things to do and somebody needs something from me, whether it's my husband or my kids or it's somebody who needs encouragement or ministry. I'm going to tell on myself here... um, A few weeks ago, uh, well, my oven died about a month ago. So we were without an oven for like three weeks. And uh, what was it, last week or two weeks ago? I don't remember. Uh, We finally got my new oven. Ken, it was Friday afternoon, about 5 o'clock. Ken comes home from work. He says, I'm going to go down to Sears. I'm going to get the oven, the new one, bring it back. So he did that, and my kitchen is all torn up because the old one had to come out. Now, how many of you clean regularly behind the oven and under the oven? Okay. If you're like me, probably not very often. (laughs) 
So the old oven is out, and I'm scrubbing the walls, and I'm scrubbing the floor, and it's really gross, and the kids are hungry. Like I said, it's 5 in the afternoon. I'm thinking, oh, the new one will go in quite easily, and our evening will go on. I can make dinner, but no, there's more to installing it than I realized. And so the new one is sitting in the middle of the kitchen floor. Ken's working on it. I'm scrubbing walls, and my kids are hungry, and Mom, when is dinner going to be? And there's a knock on the door, our front door. Ken says, honey, I need you to come here. So-and-so's here. And I thought, no, not now. This is not the time. Please, no. But, you know, I put a smile on my face, and I go into the living room, and there's a couple um, that came by. We weren't expecting them. And they came because they needed prayer. They had both just suffered losses. Um, Each of them had lost a family member within the last few days. And I'm going to be really honest with you guys. You would think that in that moment I'd be filled with compassion. And I wasn't. I was filled with irritation. They're standing in my doorway, both of them crying, and all I can think about is how my kitchen is torn up and my kids need dinner and that wall still needs to be finished you know, getting scrubbed, and I was really irritated. Like, why now? Couldn't you have waited an hour? I'm serious. But Ken invited them in, and they sat down on the couch, and they they shared what was going on, and they said, you know, we really need prayer. And so we prayed with him, and the Holy Spirit convicted me so strongly, and he said, right now, they are the most important thing to you. Nothing else matters. They are it. Okay, I hear you, and I am so so quickly. I'm repenting, and you know, in my mind, and just praying as as Ken's ministering to them. And okay, I hear you. I'm so sorry. Jesus will ask us at the most inconvenient times to stop for a hurting person, for a broken person. It's never going to fit into our schedule. So that's the first thing that Jesus is doing as he moves to the cross. He stops for two blind men and a hated outcast. And he asks us to do the same. It's going to be inconvenient. The next thing, Jesus puts a high value on faithfulness. So what does he do after he talks to Zacchaeus, it it says while he had the crowd's attention, because they're all checking out, like, you know, he's talking to Zacchaeus, he wants to go to Zacchaeus' house, and so he's like, oh, I got your attention, and he goes on to tell them this parable in Luke 19. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because, excuse me, he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So he tells them the parable of the ten minas. Now the Jews all thought that Jesus was coming to set up an earthly kingdom right then and there and to overthrow those horrible Romans. So he tells this parable partly to set the record straight, that that's not how it's going to go down. He tells the story of a nobleman who is Jesus, who would soon be leaving so that he could be appointed king, and then he would return. 
But in the meantime, the nobleman is giving his servants money. Ten, or he, gives, he gives the first servant ten minus. He gives the second servant five, and he gives the third servant one. Now, one mina is worth about three months' wages. That's a lot. So ten minas, that's, that's a lot of money. So what happened? The first servant with the ten minas, um, he invested it wisely, and he got a tenfold return on his investment. The second servant, a fivefold return. And then the third servant, what did he do? He buried it. Didn't do anything with what, <clears throat> with what the nobleman gave him. So I know we hear this parable and people think it, Jesus is talking about money and how we use our money. Well, that's partly it because money's important to God and what we do with it is important. But I think it's so much more than money because what did the nobleman do? He said, I'm leaving, but before I come back, I want to give you something. What did Jesus give us before, before he left, before he ascended to be with the Father? He said, I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit. So the, the Holy Spirit was this gift that Jesus gave us. It was the deposit of the Holy Spirit into our lives. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with him? Sorry. He entrusted us with the Holy Spirit and all that entails. The gifts of the Spirit that edify the body and lead lost to Christ. The fruit of the Spirit that's born in our lives as we're walking with Jesus on a daily basis. He also entrusted us with the gospel message because he said, go and make disciples of all men, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's what he's deposited in us. And what are we doing with it? When he returns, what is he going to find that we have done with that investment? Your gifts and what God has deposited in each of you is going to look different than what he's deposited in me. Remember, he gave one servant ten minus, another servant five, and the third servant one. We've all been given different gifts. We all have different callings. So we don't look at each other. We don't compare. We don't get jealous over what he or she may have and I don't have. We be faithful with what Jesus gave us because he's coming. He's returning. And what is he going to find that we've done? Think about David and Saul. I was thinking about this yesterday. Saul was anointed king, right? And then David came along, and David was anointed king. To, he was to follow Saul. And what happened? Saul got jealous, really jealous of David, so jealous that it actually became the death of him, destroyed him. Instead of being content with the anointing that God had put on his life, he got his eyes off of that and began to long for something that didn't belong to him. <clears throat> and in this last year, God has done a pretty significant work. It really started back in the fall, I think, of freeing me from the bondage of comparison and feeling as though 
I can't be as good as that person, that I don't measure up to that person. Because all that does is it gets my eyes on me instead of on God. And it leaves us, leaves me, left me, um, feeling like I was just failing miserably. And on this wheel that, you know, like the hamster wheel, you just can't get off of. So that bondage of comparison will only paralyze you. That bondage of comparison will only keep you from taking what God's given you and investing it wisely. Be faithful with whatever or however much he's entrusted to you. Just be faithful with it. And there's nothing wrong with learning from other people. I'm not talking about looking at other people's lives and learning from them, because even Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's very different than comparison. Very different. It's a bondage around the neck. And it will paralyze you. In fact, yesterday as I was preparing for this morning, um, I felt the Lord tell me that there is one or maybe even more of you here that you've been struggling with this bondage of comparison, feeling like you never are quite good enough, you never quite measure up. And it's held you back from stepping into what God has asked you to do. And there's freedom from that. So this is a little side note. If that's you, then later when the service is over, you know, we'll have the prayer team. And I would love to pray for you because the Lord has set me free from that. And I would love to see the same thing happen for you. You can ask my husband. I, I would think for so long, I'm just, I'm not a good enough wife. I'm not a good enough mother. I'm not a good enough teacher. I'm not a good enough this and a good enough that. And, he, and I would compare myself to other women, and he'd say, I didn't marry that person. I married you. I want you, not her. <laughs> so stop comparing yourself. So if that's you and you struggle with that bondage, of, you're in bondage to comparison, I want to pray with you afterwards, okay? Or not. You can go home and work it out between you and the Lord, and that's just fine. Okay, moving on. So, Revelation 22, 12 says, this is Jesus. He says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So Jesus is coming. Just be faithful with what you have. All right, number three. Jesus is going to put us in uncomfortable situations. So after he's talking to the crowd about this parable... He tells his disciples, all right, the time's come. We're going into Jerusalem. I want you to go ahead of me into the village. You're going to find a donkey tied up. Untie it. Bring it to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, tell them the master needs it. I don't know. I thought about this one, and I thought, really? If I were in the position of the disciples and Jesus was telling me just just go take that donkey 
And if you get questioned, tell them the Lord needs it. We're like, hold up. Wait, wait a second. You're asking me to do what? What will people think? What will people say? It's like Marshall shared last week uh, about dying to self. He shared about those moments when he knows that God wants him to pray for somebody or encourage somebody, and pride and fear get in the way. Well, what are they going to think? It might be awkward. It might look weird. It might raise some eyebrows. Jesus, I'm, I'm, gonna just, I'm guaranteeing you this. Jesus will definitely ask you to do things that are uncomfortable, that will stretch you, and will raise eyebrows. And it's not just, he, he doesn't do it just to make us squirm. It's not like he gets joy out of making us uncomfortable. But he knows that in asking us to do these things, it kills our flesh. There have been so many moments that Ken and I have looked at each other after saying yes to something that we felt God was asking us to do, and we go, what were we thinking? What have we gotten ourselves into? This last Christmas, we went to California to be with my family, and uh, we took the kids to Six Flags for the day. Now, they have this ride called Wonder Woman. Have any of you heard of Wonder Woman? Cameron. Yeah, well, you know what? From the ground, when we first got to the park, we're looking up and going, wow, that looks really fun. It was the first ride that we went to, Ken and Cameron and me, and, yeah, one of Cameron's cousins. We thought, oh, this will be so fun. Well, we get on that ride, and it's swinging 147 feet in the air, getting propelled at 70 miles an hour while spinning counterclockwise. So what looked really fun on the ground became absolutely terrifying a few minutes later. And I was, I was screaming, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I did. I just screamed Jesus over and over. And Cameron's screaming, yeah, make it stop, make it stop. And, you know, I was thinking that is so often how it is with Jesus. He asks us to do something, and at first we're like, oh, yeah, cool. And then in the middle of it, we're going, get me off this ride. I want off. So Jesus will ask us to do things that don't make sense. But you know what I was thinking about? He asked the disciples to do something that looked a little crazy, to go get that donkey without even asking anybody. And because of their obedience and their willingness to do it and their willingness to look foolish, they got to help usher the king into Jerusalem. And when we are willing to obey, even if it looks foolish, we get to help usher the kingdom of God into people's lives and into situations. But we have to be willing to look foolish. We have to be willing to be put in an uncomfortable situation sometimes. So get ready. All right, number four. Jesus will do exceedingly and abundantly above what we ask or imagine, as it says in Ephesians 3. But more often than not, it's not going to look like what we expect it to look like. And it's not going to happen the way we think it's going to happen. But will we trust him anyway? I mean, even Jesus 
wrestled with what lay before him in the garden. Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way to make this happen? He asked. And he said, but nevertheless, I want your will to be done, not mine. So what does that have to do with him coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Well, Jesus rode into Jerusalem amidst the shouts and the, the, the praises of the people. And they were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us now. So the Jews thought that Jesus was going to swoop in and save them right then and there and set everything right that was wrong in their world. Free him from the political oppression, um, restore, you know, the kingdom of God right there on earth. And, and he, that's not what he came to do. He didn't, he didn't meet their expectations. And in verse 41, it says, Jesus, wept over Jerup, Jer, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. They thought that what was going to bring them peace was Jesus setting up a political earthly kingdom. And they missed it. And they missed him. Because that crowd that welcomed him into Jerusalem that day was the same crowd that was calling for his crucifixion five days later. They were offended He didn't move the way they expected him to move. The kingdom of God is the upside-down kingdom. It's where you have to surrender to have victory. It's where you have to die to live, where you have to go lower to go higher, where you have to forgive the person who insults you. Where you actually have to, Jesus said, if you don't forgive, your heavenly father won't forgive you. You've got to go first. You've got to forgive first. That's the upside-down kingdom because it doesn't match the way the world does it. And I think so many times we cry out like the crowd did, save us now. I want you to fix this now. And Jesus says, actually, I want you to come and die. I want you to come and die that's what he invites us to do, to come and die. It's not pleasant, and it's not how we think that he's going to work. But on the other side of that death is resurrection. We want Jesus to show up and eliminate the stress from our lives, to immediately fix our marriage, to immediately fix our children, to immediately fix our finances or whatever this situation be, And what's his response? Take up your cross, follow me, and die. And we can either be offended by this, like the Jews were, or we can surrender to it, embrace it, and experience the glorious resurrection on the other side of it. So this is what I want to leave you with today. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he hasn't already done himself. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he hasn't done himself. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest 
who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness. And I, I know a lot of times we look at that verse and we think, well, it's our, our propensity towards sin, that weakness. Well, that's part of it because Jesus was tempted in every way and didn't sin. But it's also our weakness when we're, we're saying, God, I don't know if I can do this thing you're asking me to do. I don't know if I can love this person you're asking me to love. I don't know if, if I can say yes to being inconvenienced like you're asking me to. He knows. And we can take courage knowing that Jesus did it first. He's, he's gone down that road. He's made the way. And we can do it too. He knows what it is to have your flesh squirming. He knows what it is to have to stop at terribly inconvenient times for a broken person. He knows what it is to be put in uncomfortable situations. He knows how to be faithful in everything. He knows what it is to trust the Father when faced with really agonize, something agonizing. So today we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem with the shouts and the praises of the people towards the cross. And I really exhort you to say yes. Yes to following him down that same path, which leads to the cross, but also leads to an empty grave. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, if you haven't bowed your knee to him, today's a good day to do that. And we want to invite you to do that. If you're fighting this morning, if you're fighting saying yes to Jesus, something you know he's asking you to do, you haven't done it, because you're like, this is just, this is too hard, this is too uncomfortable, I don't know if I want to do this, today's a good day to say yes. There is resurrection on the other side. And you can say yes knowing that Jesus has gone before you. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we get to, that, that you invite us to follow you, to take up our cross and to follow you into the unknown and into the uncomfortable and into the inconvenient. But you also uh, with that, you invite us to follow you into the resurrection. We die today, but there's resurrection tomorrow. We say no to the flesh today so that there can be resurrection tomorrow. Thank you for the privilege and the joy of, of getting to go down that path with you. We honor you this morning. We bless you this morning. We say thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that you said yes to the Father Thank you for being willing to be inconvenienced. Thank you for doing what was hard. Thank you for doing what was painful. Thank you for doing what was 
uh, agonizing so that we could be free, so that we could be restored, so that we could be healed. Thank you, Jesus. We honor you this morning. We bless you this morning. Give us the courage to say yes to following you down that same path. In your name I pray. Amen.